So before Hope uh, made its decision to have a campus in Mount Laurel, uh, I used to drive around Mount Laurel. Uh, I would come over here and uh, just drive. Uh, I would turn my GPS off and just kind of wander. And I would just go up and down streets and just go, I wonder where that goes. And I would just start heading a different direction. And as I was going, I was I would spend time praying over developments as I would drive by them and look at different buildings and think, oh, I wonder if, <laughs> and then this, you know. I actually one time walked through this building, uh, wandered through uninvited, and uh, saw some bingo going on in one quadrant, and they invited me in. Um, no, not bingo. What do they play? Du Sure. That's what it was. But so, and I, and I thought I, I, they wanted me to, but so I was just driving around, and uh as I was driving, each time I'd come to an intersection, I had a decision to make. Do I go straight? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? And I kind of just would meander around. And eventually, I would decide now it's time for me to head back to the office or head to where my next appointment was. And then I would turn on my GPS. And often I would be like, oh, I had no idea where I was. Look at that. Look, look how that happened. And that kind of is where we're headed in this series, in this idea of life interrupted, that, that life is filled with interruptions, that it's filled with moments where we have a crisis decision to make do we turn left do we turn right do we go straight we make these kind of directional decisions all day some of them have little or no impact like do i get a large or small coffee that's a decision we make that really has very little impact except the amount of caffeine you have and maybe the people around you that has a greater impact but it really is a small decision while others have this greater impact on life and the lives of others and these interruptions are often a crisis management decision, right? A decision we have to make. So we're maybe we're headed in a direction, maybe we're in a conversation, maybe we're completing a thought and the phone rings, or something comes along, or there's a cause that, uh, that creates a change or a change in direction, and it, we describe that as an interruption. But those interruptions can be viewed as opportunities as well. It really depends on our perspective. And what I said last week is, uh, I'm going to echo again today, is that throughout the Bible, God has a habit of interrupting. That throughout the Bible, God interrupts. The Christmas story is probably the greatest interruption in human history. God chose to break through human history. History was written up to this point, and the history that was written was that humanity's fall from heaven was continuing, and there was a continued separation from God. And then Jesus comes to planet Earth as a baby, and it's an interruption of human history. God chooses to leave heaven to come to Earth. God chooses to leave his throne in heaven to become a human baby. It is the greatest interruption in history with the greatest result ever for human history. And so what is often viewed as an interruption, in reality, it's really just about life. We manage these kinds of changes and these kinds of, 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 of decisions, these crisis moments all the time some are small some are great it really has to do with our perspective so i want to talk a little bit about some interruptions and we're going to use the stories that we just read this morning and so i'm going to unpack the what we just merged together i'm going to pull back apart now and tell the christmas story and then we're going to tell the other story as well 
So Matthew begins by saying this. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. It's going to be up on the screen, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. So last week, it was Luke's story. Luke shares uh, his story of the, of, of the Christmas happenings, and now this is Matthew's story. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born, Matthew begins. He says, his mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Now, a little recap, if you were here last week, remember I talked about First century engagement is a lot different than 21st century engagement. Uh, in the first century, really, there were about three steps. You could probably say there were more or less, but let's say for our purposes, there are three steps to an engagement in the first century. The first step is that the two families uh, would get together and there would be a, an agreement on the union. So it was a negotiated event, right? Moms and dads, some of you think we should go back to that, right? You think that wouldn't be a bad bad thing for us to practice, right? So there's this negotiation between, uh, between the two families about who the person would be betrothed to. And you'd negotiate, negotiate a price for the bride, and, they would, and this price would be paid by the bride's father. And that was all part of basically the first step. And once that step is completed, the second step began this way. There was a public announcement and this announcement would be made that the two fathers would say, hey, we've come to a, uh, an agreement and we're going to have our children be married to each other. And at this point, the couple was called pledged. They were pledged to be married to each other. Now, the groom would return to his family home and he would begin adding on an addition to the home that his father had owned and so they would they created these insular communities they would just keep adding on a wing to the home and the home would keep getting bigger so here's where mom and dad we might disagree with the first century we don't want them adding additions onto our house right at least i don't want them adding additions onto my house the bride would also go back to her home, and she would begin to prepare for married life. During this time, the couple lived separately with their parents, and this process could last as long as a year. Much more binding than today's engagement. At this point, even though the couple was not officially married, their relationship could be broken only through death or divorce. So they were legally married, but they lived separately. That's the second step. Now, the third step is after this waiting time, the couple would be married and they begin living together. The th the, this third step would take place when the father would see the home, the addition that the son was building, and the father would say that it's ready. And then he would send the groom to retrieve the bride. So when Matthew says his mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, in the first century language, everyone understood in that culture that they were in step two. They were married legally but living separately. But before the marriage took place, step three, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph comes into the picture. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly have you ever asked this question how did joseph find out mary was pregnant how does anyone how did that conversation go the unlikely story of an angel but matthew tells us that joseph 
was a righteous man. And so Joseph has a decision that he is considering. He's come to that intersection. Do I go straight? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? He has a decision to make. There's been an interruption, and he's managing a crisis. There's a a decision he has to make. He can make a right decision. And the right decision, remember, he's righteous. He is righteous. The right decision that he could make could be, because he's in step two, could be to divorce Mary. And because he cares for Mary, he plans to do this quietly to spare her embarrassment and even to spare her death. Because if Joseph is a righteous man, he's following the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23 says this. It's up on the screen. Suppose a man meets a young woman, a virgin, who is engaged to be married, and he has sexual intercourse with her. If this happens within a town, you must take both of them to the gates of that town and stone them to death. Merry Christmas. <laughs> a righteous man who follows Old Testament law, who discovers that his betrothed bride is pregnant, would be righteous in following the Old Testament law. But Joseph, being a righteous man, story says that he plans to end the engagement quietly. He cares for Mary. But he's still going to end the marriage. So the story continues. As he considered this, as he's in this crisis moment, this decision needs to be made. Do I turn left? Do I turn right? Do I go straight? Where? How do I manage this circumstance? As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, Son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So after he had considered this right plan, there's another interruption. See, for the first interruption was Mary's pregnancy. Mary's announcement that she's pregnant would be an interruption. The second is that Joseph has a dream and Joseph's sleep is interrupted by an angel. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and he took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born and Joseph named him Jesus. And so Joseph came to that intersection in life where do I turn left or do I turn right? Do I go straight? And he continued on to step three. He could have divorced Mary. He would have been right. It was his right. But there's a difference between what is right and what is more right. There's a right thing to do and there's a more right thing to do. So I'm going to talk about the more right thing. So the next story that was mashed together is up on the screen also. It's 30 years later. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Remember Deuteronomy 22 here. They caught her in the act of adultery. 
Verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, Deuteronomy 22, the law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? So Jesus is in the temple or outside the temple, and they bring this woman in interruption. There's several interruptions here if you get where I'm going. It's early in the morning, and she was caught in the act of adultery. There's an interruption that took place in this woman's life. There's an interruption that takes place with Jesus as that wasn't his intent of going to the temple to be involved in this circumstance. And these men have brought this woman to Jesus, and they're right. She was caught in the act of adultery. But really, we'll see in the story that they have no real concern for the law because what did Deuteronomy 22 say? Both parties. They've only brought the woman. And so John lets us know that. Verse 6, it's up on the screen. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. See, they likely didn't believe in capital punishment, really. They just wanted to see how Jesus would react to the harshest Old Testament commands. They really were putting him in a situation where they were making him decide, do you follow the Old Testament law? And if you don't, we're going to hold that against you. At the same time, if he did follow that Old Testament law, if he said, yeah, let's stone her, then they then could use their other card in this equation as they could then say, hey, you're not following Roman law because he's not allowed to issue a death penalty. So they felt that they had Jesus. They had caught him in a sense. They had, they had given him a, a, a no out. He's come to a road with no options that are tenable. If he goes right, if he goes left, he's caught. So they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against it. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So while the people who brought this woman, the men who brought this woman, thought that the only options were left or right, Jesus found another way. There's right, and then there's more right. And so in that moment, Jesus offers this, this significant teaching on quick judgment. And he says, there's right, and there are, there's right, and then there's more right. And I've always wondered, I hope you have wondered this as well, if you've read this story before, why does he write in the dust? I mean, it, it almost doesn't fit the story. He's engaged in this conversation, this debate, this angry debate. There's this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. It's early in the morning. Can you just imagine what she looks like, how she feels, what she's experiencing right now? She's been manhandled, literally, into this space and brought into the room. 
uh, or the space, the courtyard, and she's thrown at the feet of Jesus, I assume, and she's there, and she's been caught red-handed, and there's accusers all around her, and they ask the teacher, Jesus, what do you think we should do? Should we stone her? That's what the law says, and she's waiting for an answer, wondering what's going to happen to her, And Jesus starts writing in the dust. What's he writing? What's interesting is nobody knows. There's a lot of great suggestions. There are some people, some theologians, some commentaries that believe that Jesus was writing out the Ten Commandments possibly in the dust. Writing them out because... Those would be the laws that could or could not be broken, you know, could, could, could be broken, and, and committing adultery would be one of those laws, and so he'd be writing those out. And then he says, if you haven't sinned, so maybe he was pointing to the Ten Commandments that he had written out. Other uh, theologians and commentators think that it's possible that he was writing out the sins that those men, you know, he's God, you know, he's I don't think that's what he was doing, but it's possible he was writing out the sins that others have committed that were gathered in that group. And then there's one <laughs> that I read that became my favorite and it's the one I believe. He was just doodling. I just love to imagine Jesus in that moment just doodling, just writing circles, whatever he felt like in this moment. Here's why I find that so appealing. At this moment, in this really tense moment, all the pressure is on which character in this story? This woman, right? She's everybody staring at her, looking at her. She's been caught red-handed. And there are men, and we, with stones in their hand, prepared to put her to death. And Jesus starts writing in the sand, doodling in the sand, doing something with the sand, and all of a sudden, it's so remarkable that John share, keeps it in the story, that people start noticing Jesus writing in the sand. There's right, and then there's more right. So verse 8, after he tells them to uh, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone, verse 8 then says, Then he stooped down again and wrote in the sand again, or wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, only until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Why are you where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. There's right, and then there's more right. There's right, and then there's more right. So if that first century story of Joseph didn't 
help to understand and tease out the idea of right and more right. If this story with Jesus and this woman didn't help you, I'm going to give you a 21st century story. I hope this works. It's the movie A Few Good Men. Yeah, see, all of a sudden, I just told two Bible stories, and you all are like, yeah, okay. But A Few Good Men, you're like, yeah, let's do it. Preach, baby, preach. All right, I love A Few Good Men. Anytime this movie is on the screen, and I, I, I record it. Is that ridiculous, right? I just love the story, right? Because what's the story? These are, these are, they're following orders, which is the right thing to do. However, there's a more right thing to do, right? Because what does Private Downey say at the end of the movie? He said, what do we do wrong? We did nothing wrong. And then Corporal Dawson responds and says, yes, we did. We were supposed to fight for the people who couldn't fight for themselves. We were supposed to fight. For Willie. They followed orders. They did what was right, but there was a more right thing to do. Which begs the question, and I want to spend our last few minutes together, how do we know the more right thing to do? Besides angels in a dream. How do we know the right thing to do? So in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says this. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Changing the way you think. Changing the way you think. Jesus, when he was teaching, said things like, love your enemies and pray for your enemies. Does that come natural? You don't answer this. Does that come natural for you? It doesn't for me. Sometimes we feel really right in not praying for our enemies, right? We feel really right in not loving our enemies. We're about to change from right to more right. Changing the way we think. Culture tells us that bad things don't happen to good people. Culture tells us that, hey, you be you. Culture's currently telling us that if we disagree on something, we can't be in relationship with each other. And I have to not be around you because we have different views on whatever those views may be. Culture tells us, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. What if there's a more right way in changing the way we think? What if changing the way I think is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ for the sake of others? What if that's part of that process, changing the way I think, changing the way you think? What if changing the way you think is asking yourself in this situation, in this decision, in this 
interruption, is there a more right way? See, for, there are some of us who've grown up in the church, and the way we've been thinking, how we've been taught, is that the Bible is right. And it is. Until we weaponize it. And then it's not. See, there are times where we think the Bible against the offender leads to judgment, and we end up as rocks in our When maybe changing the way we think is, it's the Bible up against my life. And how could I live my life differently? Or how should I be living my life differently? Is there a more right way? For some, it, we didn't grow up in church, and so the Bible plays a different role. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a new document, it's a new uh, opportunity, and that's a good thing. But we've also, though, grown up with some cultural understanding that culture has taught us. And so we have a right way, but it's not the more right way. So what if changing the way you think is asking yourself, is there a more right way? Jesus demonstrates this, this changing the way we think process. There's a verse that uh, he shared with his disciples. It's in John chapter 15. It's up on the screen. Jesus said to his disciples, and this is at the end of his ministry time with them, and this is actually at the Last Supper time, and, and, uh, and uh, this is his last night with all of them together, and he says, this is my commandment, and he says, love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Now, this is really important. This is not the golden rule. All right? This is not the golden rule. The golden rule Jesus shared early on in his ministry, which is do unto others what you would like for them to do to you. All right? That's actually in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he was quoting uh, parts of the Old Testament when he said that. So he was saying that we should love people the same way that we want to be loved. That's, that's right, right? I want to be loved the same I want to be loved the same way I, I love you. That's right. But then Jesus offers this change in the way we should be thinking. And so now he's been spending three years with these disciples. And this is his last evening with them. And he says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. See, early on, when he first is gathering this group together, he's saying, hey, the right thing for you to do is to love each other the way that you would want to be loved. So your standard is you. Three years later, as he's been teaching, as he's been sharing, as he's been investing his life in these men, he says, here's the new commandment. Your standard is not enough. I want you to love people the same way I loved you. So where was Matthew? At the table, hearing this, and he would have had to think back. I remember when I was a tax collector. 
I remember when I had no longer part of the tribe of Israel because I had chosen the Roman government over my people. And Jesus said, come and follow me. I'm sure Matthew is thinking, how can I love people the same way Jesus loved me? Peter's probably thinking, I remember when I was on the beach, mending my nets. And Jesus came along and saw me as a fisherman, but saw me as someone who could fish for men. And I imagine Peter is at the table thinking, how can I love people the same way Jesus loves me? And Jesus says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. What if that's more right than right? What if forgiveness and service and humility, what if that's the kind of love that is more right than right? That it's about changing the way we think. And so instead of the world saying that, hey, we think differently, we look differently, we act differently, that means we can't be in relationship with each other. Instead, I began to think, how can I love them the way Jesus loves me? Instead of weaponizing the Bible and saying, I'm going to put up the Bible against somebody else and say they're wrong, where's my stone? Instead, I said, how could I love them the way Jesus loves me? What if that's more right than right? My favorite Bible verse, and I throw it in every time I can, it's up on the screen, it's in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. Here's why I love that verse. This is what he requires of you. I'm like, all right, just give me the bottom line. Do what is right. Love mercy. And walk humbly with God. What if that's the more right thing? What if that's more right than right? And then the reason I also love that verse is because I didn't realize how Wesleyan I was when I made that my favorite verse. Because John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, said this when they when talking about the essentials, he said, it's up on the screen also, do no harm. That sounds a lot like do what is right. Do good. That sounds suspiciously like love mercy and he said stay in love with God which sounds a lot like walking humbly with your God what if that's the more right thing so I got to challenge you with something here uh, there's actually a, a, a few different challenges, and, and I think they're all connected to this idea of what it, would it look like for us to do the right thing, to do the more right thing. Not just follow the Bible, not just do what Pastor Rick says you should be doing, not just following those cultural axioms that we've 
learn to adopt as our own, but what if we were to ask ourselves, what's the more right thing? What would happen? What would happen if you were to extend an invitation to someone else? Uh, a few weeks ago, Randy was preaching, and he uh, in this one of the parts of the statistic that he shared is actually a few months ago now, uh, when Randy was uh, preaching this this message. But uh, I noticed that three quarters of the people in the survey that he presented on their book had were spiritual. And I realized that three quarters of our population does not go to church. A lot less than that, though, right? So then it occurred to me that they're spiritual, they just don't have a community where they can express their spirituality or discover or deepen their spirituality. And then I thought, what would happen if we were to invite someone who's already experienced religion and they could find something life-changing in that invitation? That there are people around you who already have an opinion of church, they already have an opinion of faith, but what if they received an invitation that could change, possibly change, that opinion. What if that's a more right thing? That in the conversations that you have at work and at school and uh, at, 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 um, uh, in your families, in, in, in your circles of influence, what if in those conversations you were to share about your faith? Last week, I asked you to, to, there's a postcard in your program, and I asked you to address that to a friend and uh, mail that out. And there's another one in there. I got a deal on postcards. I challenge you to do that again. Send that postcard out. Invite someone to church. Do you know that Christmas time is the most likely time someone will accept an invitation to come to church? It is the most. It's our Super Bowl. Also, uh, on the way on the way in, you were handed uh, an invitation card. I got a deal on these too. I don't know what I want you to do with that. I mean, you could write names on it and pray for people that you know. You could uh, leave it in the break room at work. I mean, are you allowed to do that? Maybe it's the more right thing to do. But what would happen if someone were invited? Another one is what would happen if you were to just, I'm going to challenge you to two people this week, offer words of affirmation. Randy suggested writing out a card. Maybe there's someone who feels like they're surrounded by rock throwers right now. And they need you to do some doodling. They need a kind word. They need a kind act. They just need to be affirmed. Maybe that's the challenge for you this week. Or maybe for you it's that God wants to interrupt your sense of rightness 
because you have are in a circumstance, you're in a, a situation where you believe you know what's right. And maybe there's a more right for you. Are you willing to change the way you think? What if that's the interruption God has for you? He wants to change the way you think. Because there's a more right way to live. More right than wrong. So will you stand with me for closing prayer? And so, God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you, God, uh, for this time that we've had to worship together. God, I thank you for the story of Joseph and his willingness to, 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 to do what was more than right. God, I thank you for the story of the, of the woman who was caught in adultery and, and that Jesus showed us that grace and forgiveness trump the law every time. And God, I pray for each of us that we would be challenged this week to, to embrace the interruptions that may come into our lives, that, God, we would be willing to be an interruption in someone else's life. 